Welcome back to Repod, the University of Salford's research podcast. And today I'm talking to Dr. Sharon Cohen, whose work in media psychology takes us across a whole range of subjects from the psychology of journalism to the social psychology of climate change. How does what's communicated in the media affect how we think and behave? Enjoy. Hello, Sharon. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's great to have you here. It feels like a long time since we've seen each other. It has been, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> since and, last uh, time was in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, Edinburgh Science Festival. Gosh, I, you know, I can't wait to get back to that. It feels like some things are getting back to normal. Campus is warming up. I think teaching's on the horizon. It's uh, hopefully good times ahead. Yes, let's hope so. <laughs> And it's so, always a great... good time. We make it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And there, there is so much that happens around sort of science communication, public engagement at the University of Salford. And it's great to have you here because I know you're very active in these areas too. So maybe just to kick things off for the episode, tell us a little bit about your journey into research, because that's one of the really fascinating things. What mm. led you into research as a career? What was your starting point? What was the what kicked it off for you? Well, I remember it as if it was yesterday. So I went to study for my undergrads uh, in Padova, which is mm. obviously I'm Italian. So Padova is one of the uh, universities that has one of the best psychology uh, departments in Italy. I was lucky enough to make it in. And one day during my second year, my professor, Professor Contarello, uh, she invited Samuel Gerner to come. He's a US-based researcher. And I cannot tell you, I completely fell in love with his work and the research he was doing. And he was like, that's what I want to do. He was developing this model of prejudice that was called the dual model of prejudice. And he was uh, explaining how sometimes we uh, think we're not prejudiced and we don't say anything that is prejudiced. We don't do anything that is prejudiced. But still, implicitly, we act in a discriminatory prejudice way. And he and video and their team started doing some creative experiments to demonstrate this. Some being like in the tube with someone dropping books and see who picks the books up. Some pretending to be, uh, uh, you know, lost in the highway and calling people for help. I mean, it was brilliant. And for me, it was a, a revelation. That's when I decided that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> haven't grown up yet yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting actually I uh, I remember also my second year of undergraduate being a period where research seemed like an interesting career path and I think it's partly you've got through the first year at university you're now thinking about bedding in those skills and, and, and thinking about your future and, and second year is such an important I think period in that transition but um, so then that's really inspiring to hear about so you were interested in psychology from very early on was that a choice well before university did that really 
become your focus sort of early on in life? No, not really. No, okay. I, I I wanted to study philosophy. Ah, uh, cool. Yeah, uh, I was drawn. Well, when I was very little, I wanted to yeah. become a doc, a medical doctor. Right. However, once my sister got hurt and uh, she was bleeding all over and uh, I almost fainted. So I was like, mm, maybe doctor is <laughs> not my career. Uh, maybe I'm not cut for that. Uh, so I switched and then I was always in this fantastic world of ideas and I love thinking, I love creating, I love uh, trying to understand everything around me uh, so philosophy seemed like the obvious uh, way for me uh, however it felt like when number one I was 18 year old I wanted to get out and uh, philosophy was right next door so I wanted to find <laughs> something similar that wasn't uh, next door and uh, and also uh, I have gone through my own troubles like every mm. teenager psychologically and uh, I wanted to understand I wanted mm. to learn um, so that's what brought me to Padua and to psychology and I've been so lucky because there are amazing teachers there and they really are inspirational and they changed my life, mm. which is why I decided that if I ever could do the same for even one person, that's what I'm going to do. And at some point in that journey, you were led to solve the university. So when did you join? What was that process? Well, that was because um, I started, I was working at Christchurch University at the time um, and I had started uh, a module in media psychology yeah. uh, that was very popular back there. And um, I saw that at Salford, not only they had, uh, they were about to start a master's in media psychology that was already designed so I didn't need to do anything just <laughs> come and do it uh, and it was a media city you know we would teach at media city and um, prior to working at Christchurch University I worked at Goldsmith as a research assistant in the media and communication department and for that project, I had to go once to Whitehall to the BBC building. I don't know how to describe. I felt when I approached the BBC building, I felt so honored. So uh, I, I can't I can't put it in words, but the idea of being shoulder to shoulder with those that have so much potential mm. in improving the world and our society they have uh you know this potential this ability and the idea of being there and having the opportunity to help them or well obviously mm. i'm no one to help but to give pointers and to share what i know was irresistible to me 
That's incredible. I uh, I also have a nice memory of, of joining Salford and first discovering Media City. And it's whenever I have my first year undergraduate start with our, with our tutee seminars, one of the things I tell them is to make sure they go over to Media City because it's an incredibly exciting oh, place, as yeah. you say, with the BBC, ITV, lots of really creative organisations that are based there. And us as the only university with a campus building there, which is just fantastic. And it's it's an extraordinary building as well, apart from anything. It so is. it's definitely a, a place to be inspired, especially to think about the media in context. So for those people that may not know what media psychology is, what sorts of questions do you tend to ask in this area? In media psychology, I mean, it's a very broad, broad study. I come to it from the social psychology tradition. Uh, that's my background. I'm a social psychologist. So what I personally am interested in is understanding um, how the role played by media and how do we use uh, uh, media and how media uh, shape our interactions uh, in, a, in our social world. So I see media as a product of culture, as a product of a community, really, and, uh, and something that is part of a process of co-construction of reality. So we construct media and tools, but also these tools shape the way we understand and interpret the world so it's a co-constructor it's cyclical that's my take however media psychology as i said is very broad and what it uh one of the strongest definition is uh karen de shackerford uh definition that is the study of the interaction of the human with media as broad as that so mm -hmm. you can have usability research my uh, colleague Adam Galpin, who leads the masters with me, is uh, uh, an expert in usability. Uh, there is like the psychology of, mu of music, of movies, of radio, of podcasts. I have a PhD student actually now looking at uh, podcasts. Uh, so he, I'm going to ask him to look at this and tell us what he can say about the podcast. Yeah, but, but it's an extremely uh, fascinating way to look at the subjective world, yeah, I think. Yeah. Psychology is about subjectivity. And uh, we fundamentally say, okay, how where and how do does technology and do media uh, intervene in this process of uh, construction of su subjectivity and it's such a dynamic area i mean as you say media psychology alone covers so many things you mentioned podcasts and uh, i'm doing an interview with fortune magazine today about clubhouse which of course has been the sort of culmination of audio as being this new sort of social environment and it feels like there, there, there is such a reconfiguration of the lives we lead through media culture that it's, it's so it feels really urgent to look at these things because they're so fast moving and, and I know that you have recently published also a book on the psychology of journalism which of course we need to see but also we need to understand how many things are so connected to this because journalism is so much in the public eye and it's also 
such a, a kind of, I guess, point of controversy because people think about whether, in fact, platforms like Twitter, Facebook, the social channels need to be regulated in terms of, of journalistic principles and practices as well. So it, it feels like you, your, your work must be always at the cutting edge of, of public interest and attention. Yeah, I see my role. Uh, I must say, I worked for a long time with, uh, I was lucky, mm. Professor James Caron at Goldsmith. And he is one of the first media and communication scholars in the UK. He's a historian. Mm -hmm. So I see the role of a media psychologist also as someone who is able to distinguish what is novel, what is unique mm -hmm. uh, in this moment in time from what is a process that we've seen over and over again in history. Um, there are examples, I recently, for example, published a paper with a couple of colleagues of mine from Italy, Cristina Zogmaster, being uh, um, Michela, uh, I don't remember the surname, but <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> but uh, uh, we were looking at uh, how uh, there is this hyper on uh, mobile use, for example, mm. and many people talk about mobile use dependency, how, you know, there is this danger of mobile use and uh, etc. Now, I was reading yesterday about Socrates. Socrates, mm. the philosopher, mm had a similar attitude, similar to the one we have towards a uh, mobile phone, towards writing. Because uh, Socrates never wrote anything. Yes. <laughs> he, everything we have is from his students, yes. right? They, they wrote Plato being one of the most prolific writers. But then, so a media psychologist starts asking these questions. It's like, is it really new? Is there really something that we need to understand? Does it really change the subjectivity? In what ways? And I think media psychology is so beautiful because on the one hand, it helps us understanding the constants in our functioning and also to actually gain even more insight because, for example, on Twitter, People share their thoughts. People share their inner words for free. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need to go and <laughs> collect data with all the biases of lab-based study. It's there. You know, it's a present mm. for me, for a psychologist to look at. So uh, I think that's where uh, media psychology is special compared to other disciplines. Uh, it is that it has both the historical uh, perspective and the, you know, edge, edge of the world, edge of progress uh, perspective. And we are the ones who are best placed to actually, uh, you know, see what's coming new and what's old and known. 
That's really interesting because I think uh, I've read various sort of data about social media and how the duration of certain posts on different platforms is really short. Like I think Twitter's 18 minutes and then it's it disappears from people's radar. And I think that sense of the historical side of the media is is often forgotten because we're always focused on the present or the, the last 30 minutes. And so understanding that longer history of, of media change is really fascinating. But so what are the things that you're sort of looking at at the moment? What are those urgent issues that you're focusing on right now in your research? Right now, so I'm editing a special issue uh, for Frontiers in mm. uh, political science, where we're looking at activism during COVID and mm. uh, yeah, and the role of media, obviously, in, in this. Uh, so whether the way activists use media has been different, whether the way media talk about activists has been different uh, during COVID, whether we think these changes are uh, long term or they are limited in time to that particular uh, crisis time, etc. So, with uh, uh, so besides editing the issue, I'm also doing a piece of uh, of research, a systematic, uh, not systematic, scoping review uh, of existing evidence on on the the role of COVID uh, during um, no, yeah, activity. Yeah, what happened to activism during COVID? Okay, and, and uh, that's, so that's, that's not specifically around activism about COVID. It's just generally political activism general, and how it's politi- Yeah, that's because we've seen so much. Yeah. If you think of it, uh, and it could, I suspect there is, you know, in part is mm. because people were freer to think mm. about the big picture because they weren't like entrapped in their everyday back and forth from work kind of stuff. Uh, In parties, it might be because uh, the emotions and the way you leave the events uh, is different when you are uh, leaving them through uh, the online world, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, so there could be, I mean, this is just my speculation. Uh, I, I really look forward to what the, the mm. experts can tell me in the papers they submit uh, to their special issue. But that's one area um, that I'm looking at at the moment. Uh, and there are others as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean what, I guess what's interesting about that is is the sort of naively perhaps the the implication was that especially during lockdown that there was to some degree a suspension of the possibility of being a political activist because mm. you weren't out in public mobilizing activating together and mm. so that may have given rise to I guess a more prominence of digital activism but um, mm. but it's, it's hard to say really it is hard to say. However, psychology, social psychology has explored for a long time uh, digital activism and mm. uh, computer mediated communication and the link between the two. So, for example, there is one example that I always talk about is a study that looked at the role of uh, uh, the YouTube documentary on Connie. Uh, on, you know, the activism and digital activism, basically, mm. of people who 
watched uh, the documentary and there is this talk about opinion-based groups mm -hmm. and these are groups uh, that are formed by shared opinion and the more we enter the world of social media the better we can understand what an opinion-based group is really mm -hmm. i think uh, so there is research already and there is evidence already that um, online activism is actually connected to offline activism mm. uh, and there is a correlation of about 0.35 across the study i mean i'm averaging and i'm not like a machine so i might be wrong but there is a correlation uh, so that means that it's likely that someone who engages in offline in online activism um, will translate that activism into offline activism as well mm -hmm. uh, given the right conditions of course um, i mean yeah. it's interesting because i think sometimes people will say that being a sort of digital activist isn't enough and that you need to get out there and do things but if there's actually a journey from being digitally active engaged and then towards perhaps being active in other ways that's a really interesting thing to know yeah there is again uh, like in most cases there are like the uh, critics of the online activism uh, and the proponents of it so Pippa yeah. Norris for example she was a big proponent of the internet as the force for the Chris Sheehy as well, mm -hmm. they wrote they were talking extensively about the potential of the internet in democratizing and bringing people, making them more active, uh, making it easier for mm -hmm. many to actually say their piece, mm -hmm. have their opinion, uh, express their opinion and talk about their issues and we've seen it like I, I'll never forget once at Soulport we organized uh, an event and Meg John Barker came and she it was on social media and feminism and she came and she talked about the parody movies uh, parody videos mm. that uh, different communities minoritized groups uh, did of um, a song uh, oh god it was a very controversial one and now <laughs> i don't remember it I, I i mean i remember it but i don't think it's appropriate if i start singing it uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll post it yeah. as a comment okay but the, there was this song that was very sexist uh -huh. and uh, it was objectifying women quite clearly and uh, activists took ownership and did parodies parody mm. video and that was an empowering experience and that helps these communities to gain visibility to yes. be heard to propose alternative narratives yeah we can't underestimate that yeah i don't think and uh, and so sort of speaking of alternative narratives, we of course are in the middle of of gearing up to the COP twenty six in Glasgow later in the year, and I know that sort of political and media communications around climate are one of those areas that you look at, which uh, must be sort of continually sort of fascinating. But how do you see things sort of leading up to COP? Are you sort of optimistic that the media communications are 
are being effective at getting messages across or what have you learned from your research? Ha! Thank you for that question <laughs> because we are in the middle of the impossible rebellion and uh, I have made no mystery that I'm a supporter of extinction yeah. rebellion. Uh, I've always been, and if it wasn't that Marcati zeal, right now I would be in the streets in London. <laughs> uh, so, you know, no doubt about that. And um, I think uh, I've, I've listened very carefully to uh, journalists uh, who uh, are maybe environmental correspondents, their heart is in the right place. They want to make a difference. They want to help. But they're in a machine that works with a logic that is completely different uh, from their logic. And, and sometimes they struggle to get their own messages across because there are demands from the machine that is the media production uh, that make it difficult for them to understand. And sometimes it's also because they are trying to do the best job they possibly can. The, the example I tell my students all the time that I think is the clearest is the false balance effect. Now, a journalist, when they are trained, they are told, you know, a good journalist always covers as many different viewpoints as possible because that promotes democracy. So you, if there are two different opinions on something, you have to cover them. Mm -hmm. Now, many researchers, Boykofer Roberts, for example, wrote it for the UN in a report, would tell you, well, but there are things in which balance makes no sense. When there is a scientific consensus that, you know, climate change is anthropogenic, that humans are causing destruction in the environment, and this has to be stopped because we are hitting the self-destruction button without even thinking twice about it. It makes no sense yeah. to go and ask the one person that doesn't agree. <laughs> yeah. Because that will give people the impression that it's a matter of opinion. I agree yeah. with climate change. I don't agree. It's not a matter of agreeing. You know, it's a fact. Yes. Uh, so that's one example. But there are so many other examples where psychology and understanding how, and that's what the book does, looks at how basic psychological processes work both in journalists and in the audience mm -hmm. and the interaction between these is with the larger system that dictates this interaction and kind of delimits the interaction is the heart of our understanding of what's going on and why we actually need better coverage. And I think one of the really interesting sort of discussions for academia to have is how to be more involved with some of these political discussions, particularly around things like climate change. And, and I suppose it'd be interesting to hear you reflect, you've mentioned already that you, you feel invested in the climate 
concerns and climate action. Yeah. How do you, as a researcher, manage that personal commitment to the issues and the pursuit of some degree of objectivity or balance within your research? That's a very good question, because first of all, <laughs> the, uh, the way I've been thinking a lot about it, and I think, you know, it's psychology is about subjectivity mm. and understanding subjectivities and uh, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see the world through see their subjective view of the world mm. and that's what i try to do so mm. i don't try to be objective because i mm -hmm. don't believe objectivity exists i believe uh, in psychology we can only talk about a multiplicity of subjectivities we can't talk about objectivity uh, therefore my goal as a researcher uh, is number one and for my students most of all uh, because I think my primary role is to make sure that will I help people to become better than what I ever could be mm -hmm. uh, so that's my goal uh, I always tell my students I want you I don't want you to be like me I want <laughs> you to be better than me so yeah. you know that's that's what I try to do. And my goal is to allow them to see me as a person, as a limited person who falls, who does mistakes, who messes up every five seconds, but <laughs> learns and is devoted to learning and improving. And by showing that I can learn, I can improve, I hope I can give that to them as well. And the same is research. We know any researcher, any methodologist will tell you there's no perfect study. There's no, you know, science is not perfect. Is the sum of the imperfection that brings knowledge. Yeah. And so that's what I try to do, to be as honest, open transparent and true as i possibly can and and that's all i can do really and and speaking of what you do and unfortunately we are sort of wrapping up we're running out of time unfortunately but i would like to give you the chance to speak a little bit about psychology itself because i know you have a leadership role there and there's so much going on isn't there Yes, there is. I, thank you for that. And sorry for speaking too much. <laughs> you give me the mic, that's the end of it. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, yes, I am so overjoyed of, of uh, being in this group of psychologists who uh, cover so many fantastic, fascinating different areas. We have four groups in psychology that are uh, visual cognition, cognitive development, uh, health and well-being, and politics, policy and practice. These are four areas where so forth rules really does. Uh, we have research projects trying to help firefighters uh, to become, uh, you know, to, to assess 
how the extreme heat affects their cognitive functioning. Mm -hmm. We have people looking at how weather exercise can help uh, children with autism to sleep better and therefore learn better in future. We have uh, scholars looking at different digital interventions for uh, depression. We have people looking at environmental psychology, retrofitting, etc. We have Psychology of Democracy, a book by Ashley Weinberger, who's also the chair of the BPS uh, political psychology section. So really, we have gold in our department. I'm not joking. And I'll give you a list of potential guests. Yes. I'm sure you won't, you won't regret a minute of your time with them. They well, have it's, so it's, much I mean, to give. It's fantastic to hear how much is going on and how much is so connected to dealing with really important issues that really help communities. And that's such a fantastic part of research at Salford, certainly. Thank you so much. <laughs> And thank you for joining me here, uh, Sharon. It's been fantastic to get to know more about your research. And I look forward to seeing the, the ongoing successes, both of your book, but also everything that you're working on. So thanks again. And I'll see thank you soon. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Andy. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was Dr. Sharon Cohen from our School of Health and Society working within the psychology team and talking about climate change, which is such a great topic to be thinking about as a researcher right now, not least because the COP26 program is just around the corner. We'll be back again for another episode about the research at University of Salford. So stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe and like. See you soon. <laughs>